Everyone's a fruit and a nutcase. It keeps you going when you toss the cable. Whatever you are doing, punting, canoeing, is nutritious and nutritious to judiciously be chewing. Happy Sunday, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Museum of Comedy podcast. This week's guest, presented by Museum of Comedy and Robert Ross, is Danny Baker. I shall endeavour to live up to such a fulsome encomium. <laughs> what, what he said. Yes, anyway. So, I'll tell you um, where that came from. <laughs> <laughs> so I do, yeah, that's all right. I wonder what, that was the opening of a, a doomed project I worked on about two years ago. Uh, 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 I was asked to uh, reboot The Muppets, not the one that's on now, but a, a show that eventually became called That, that Puppet Game Show. And, uh, yeah, and, and uh, the host of it, I wanted to be like Alec Guinness. And it was great, they, the uh, Henson Company came over and, and they said, we can't use the Muppets because they don't own it anymore, but Henson's Company wanted to... And so they gave us all these designs. And, uh, and they said, this is, these are the puppets that are in Chicago being built, given personalities, and, you know, so I'd write, and they paid very well for it. Uh, but the, the, the host of the show, I wanted to be basically Terry Wogan, but who spoke like uh, Guinness. And the opening line of it, because it was a backstage thing and a game show as well, was him saying, thank you, thank you, I shall now attempt to live up to such a fulsome encomium. Well, the Americans faced when I gave them that. They said, <laughs> uh, you know, God knows I love American comedy, but these people said, who, who is this? I said, well, the fact is the show is beneath him, that's the point. And so all the cast say, what is he saying? And a fulsome encomium. Anyway, uh, we, we, I thought it was one of the best things I'd written. They didn't. And, uh, <laughs> and it came to the air, and in the end they had uh, Vernon Kay doing it, saying, thanks very much, welcome to the show. But I thought it had to be trickier than that. Uh, and I, I didn't plan I, I came on, and as you were nice enough to applaud, that popped into my head. So uh, There's a few clips there, and we, we finished with um, the, the opening monologue from um, Cradle to Grave, Cradle Grave, which yeah. is one of those rare things in TV, an instant sitcom classic in my yeah, opinion. But, do you know what, uh, Robert, and here's the thing, normally uh, my, my default position is to be, I mean, God knows, I, didn't, I heard some of the things you're doing there, but I've always said I insist we call what I call a career uh, uneven. Uh, <laughs> I've done work of uneven quality over the years, <laughs> and because I've been behind the scenes in front of it, and I never paid much attention, but occasionally, and I did TV Heroes, which was okay, and some things with BBC Four, uh, and then this. And so when people say they like Cradle to Grave, you can say, yeah, I know. Nobody's more surprised. <laughs> it, it was good. It was a good series. And normally when I do stuff, you have to draw the curtains and lay down for a couple of days. But uh, no, honestly, that's, that's true of most telly. That is true of most. It's not me. I'm not being self-effacing. But the, uh, uh, that was, yeah, everything came together with that. And what with the clout of Jeff Pope as producer, my great friend Jeff, and the director was in the 70s. And the one thing we didn't want it to be was, you know, oh, look, there's a space hopper. Oh, President Nixon's resigned. Oh, three-day week. Nobody was aware they were going through the 70s any more than we are going to be portrayed one day with the big old cliche. So it was, it was it had a big budget. It was beautifully done. The script sang. The cast sang with it. And, yeah, it was one of those where you can say, well, yeah, when people say, what did you do? I can say, well, I did that. And we're doing it again. In series two. Amazing cast, as you mentioned. And, uh, Peter Kay is your dad. Obviously, Peter was not my first choice. I would have it was written, no, no, but it was our first choice. And it was written with Peter in mind. A long time, uh, about three years ago when we first started it. And people say, well, you know, wow, really? Yeah, well, I've, I've known Peter a long time. I've written bits and pieces for Peter over the years. Uh, 
And I know that he's not he's not your goofy stand up, and he's, he's the best at it, and he, you know, made a record show. Just uh, uh, but he he really had that Ronnie Barker thing always about him. He's good enough to ration it out to his own talents. Uh, but he, he needed to make that jump where he was, yeah, he was shocked. People were shocked when he first came on. But we had to realise that, uh, uh, and when we sat down, we thought, and, and with Peter, and he said, yeah, people are not going to buy me as a cockney. I, I am not. But neither was Rodney Buse in The Likely Lads a Geordie, if you think about that. Even Arkwright in Open All Hours, that's a very small part of Yorkshire. That uh, uh, Harry H. Corbett in Steptoe. Oh, God, you dirty home. <laughs> what part of London is that? <laughs> And so once the shock was over, we Peter talk, and he rang me once. I think I've got it. I'm going right up here with it. And I said, "It's great, whatever you're, because that's how that character speaks. Forget how my dad would have did speak. The pool of people around that, and he, he, he gave himself over to it. And Peter's got a reputation for not, you know, being much of a Democrat. He let himself be directed. He worked really hard with voice coaches, not me, because you get me to do the voice coach, then you're just doing a, a, a mimic. But a voice coach can knows what he does with his Bolton tongue, as he says a few words, and what. Uh, where you need to place your tongue. Uh, he can try and do me, and that didn't work. But the bloke he worked with was great. Uh, but it was very funny, because it's quite long speeches sometimes. And he got to the end of uh, uh, some of them, and he'll go, Right, so that's it, Michael. Make sure you don't do that. And I'm putting it over there. Oh, fucking over there! <laughs> and, and we've got a load of them. We've got a load of them. There! Can we pick it up? There! No, we're back to the top. So dude, there was a lot of that, but he was, he's a, the great thing, and I hope people, after the first 10 minutes, he, he was Spud, he just, he, that was it, and, and it was unthinkable now or anyone else, but it was written with him. It was, we went with him to direct it originally, we wanted, because he's a good, great director, Peter, uh, sometimes works under pseudonyms, but he uh, is a very good director, and, uh, no, no, I couldn't do that, it's, it's too much, I'm good at sketches and one, it's too much commitment, you need a real one. But as we were coming back, my friend Jeff said, um, He's good at doing you, isn't he? I said, is he? He went, Didn't, you must notice when he does you. I said, but all oh, the crafty bastard. So he, uh, we went back up, and fortunately, yeah, he, he could make the time, and I think, I think he's proud of it. I think he's very good. But I think as an actor, getting a script of that quality, you're going you're gonna to invest your time into it straight away. I, I hope so, you know, and it's, it's how we... It's we, a rare we, we, thing to you. I think it is, and, and for me, I mean, God knows, you know, I'm, I'm 60 in 18 months, uh, and so my mistakes, or, uh, and I've never done anything like that, uh, but I'm, uh, I'm a scholar of it, and I know what you don't do, and fortunately so does Jeff. Mm. I mean, the thing is, I could just say, look, all this stuff uh, that, that, that took place, if you said it, but that actually took place obviously over a 15, 16 year period. We had to put it all in one summer, which was Jeff's great skill in knowing how to put a story together and how to keep, keep at it. But the, the, the liberating thing is that it was all true. Uh, no matter how small some of the vignettes were and all this, it's true because that's the liberating thing. If you're writing it as a fiction, you would never have done that. The old cliche of uh, 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 the great thing about the difference between uh, uh, fiction and real life is real life doesn't have to make sense. So whether the kid gets buried in the trousers, which has repercussions somewhere else, that really happens as writers. You would never sat down and said, how about, you know, how about the wife, um, you know, she, and so we could say, I could just say, no, this happened. This has happened. I've had these stories for 40, 50 years. You didn't have to imagine and connect them up. Well, you did have to connect them up. But the actual things were so improbable that that's, that's it. I mean, bringing on the hand grenade that eventually <laughs> goes off because somebody was mowing their garden. It turned into a, it turned into a, 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 a not septic tank, what's it called? Uh, a, 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 a compost tank. Go turn it into compost. That's there, you know, that is there. You don't have to do that. The, the skill is then saying, well, how does that react upon the story of the teacher who tried to grab hold of us? Well, that's what she is. So it was just, you know, wouldn't put it as lightly as knitting, but I think the authenticity of it 
uh, overread any kind of desperation to make a joke, which is why sometimes, you know, we didn't. The last two episodes were pretty straight drama. As all good sitcoms are, they've always got those moments of, of seriousness in there. Well, they? we wrote it as a love story yeah. in reverse. Yeah. My, my, my mum was 16 when she fell pregnant. She worked, my dad was in prison when my sister was born. You know, uh, they did live in one room and all of that. But we were going to start like that. But I think it was quite nice to go through it with all, you know, with my mum and dad. And, uh, and then at the end, say to people, this is, how, this is real. These are, these are how people really are. And it isn't this kind of met cute and all of that. Yeah. And you realise everything you've watched that far, that's, far, that's why perhaps they are so tough and abrasive and it isn't lovey-dovey and there are no sentimental moments. And it wasn't sentimental. Yeah. I set that last thing in the uh, women's toilet as a metaphor because there they were and she says to him, um, uh, blimey, Fred, you'll be telling me you love me. And he says, I do. And he says it very false. I love you. And I oh, don't make me say this again. You should take that as a, we ain't got time for this baggage, but I'll tell you now. And she goes, well, I could have done with better surroundings, but I'll take it. <laughs> and then he says, but that's our marriage. And I really like that because I thought that's exactly the tone of, uh, of unsentimental, but nevertheless, quite a forceful Love, love scene played out in unlikely surroundings. And by that time, you spent a lot of time with them, and you love those characters anyway. So, oh, well, to, hopefully, to, to hopefully. Get that, to get that sort of underlining. Hopefully, you know, and I'll tell you what the other thing was. We watched it. Me and Jeff, we watched every episode, obviously. But when we saw the final ones, uh, and they, you know, they, they, I've never understood, you know, award shows when people say, "I can't accept this without an outcome." The names. Now you do. Now you really do, because the amount of... You get that. So if we do win any, watch out. It's going to be a long <laughs> old list. Uh, but uh, uh, um, we used to watch it, and, uh, and th usually you watch something like that and think, I'd do that different. I'd, you know, oh, that didn't quite cut right. There was no point in this where we didn't think we did the best script we could and those people have done exactly the job we wanted with it. And everyone felt like that. We said to a lot of the kids in it, because they were, you know, the kids in their 20s, uh, and, uh, uh, but we said to them, because it was a really happy set, and Peter's, as soon as anyone yells cut, he gets a beatbox. Literally, I go, he'll finish a scene. It's something like that. Don't make me say it again. Cut! And, he'll, and he's got a beatbox always in. He picks it, goes, right, this used to be on quarter to five, right, quarter to five, 1978, what is it? And a theme tune plays. <laughs> and be, like, the director of photography goes, Peter, could you just take it? I'll go, whoa, 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 because you don't know what it is. What? Come on. Uh, and he would do it, and they would, he would have the beatbox going. I said to the kids on it, I said, watch out. I said, they're not all like this. We were really happy filming, but they're not all like that, as I know. So this is going to be a scattergun interview, Dan, because obviously your career has been wide, 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 <laughs> uneven. wide, wide, wide varied <laughs> and uneven. also we, we, all, we, we love the same lot of comedians yeah. as well so that, the, the thing we're going to do hopefully just touch on a few people we, we yeah, adore um, but before we leave Cradle to Grave um, I must have the phone number of Miss Blondell of course Miss Blondell, but, uh, Miss Blondell <laughs> the main, main thing everyone said is that of course it's entirely real and yeah. hopefully again we divested it of any kind of modern inference and it was a you know you sigh when people say oh well it, 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 let's put it, it didn't traumatise me, OK? I, maybe it, it can be different for others, and I appreciate that, but it didn't. And I know two or three other people who didn't bottle out as I did. It didn't happen in those circumstances. It actually took place in Norfolk. I won't give too many details away, but she's not French. Uh, and, but she did look like that. She really did. She really did. And uh, the lawyers at the BBC have said, how else can we distance it from the character? And I think they did as much to say, well, uh, you know, I think now, we, I mean... 
the real lesson she took, we made future studies, which is no such lesson, you know. Uh, uh, but we had, we had to do that because everything had to be traced back. But yes, Miss, and she, I'd love to see her again. I'd love to see her. She was great then. She was cool. She really did play me John Martin for the first time and things like that. And I was 14 and she did have no drawers on. <laughs> it's all, absolutely. Happy days. And again, that, that's, the, that's, the, that's that authenticity because yeah. if you sat down, I think, to write that, you'd put in so many caveats and, and, and things to distance yourself. We just said, let's just hit it. There's this teacher and she has it off with the kids. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. They all do that. I know, no, no, no. Well, and and the, the terrible thing is, the amount of people who have come up and said, oh my God, at our school, it was. Now, yes, of course, you can dress that in the dread clothes of modern thought, but all my mates come up and say, yeah. well, the worst thing, well, I won't tell you, but there's another story no, that my, is... My it, French teacher, Miss Page, at school was, God. And her name was Miss Page. You let yeah. her cut that yeah, out, then? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cut. Okay, so yeah. She's like, she's married the, now. The, the reason she she's was called. The now. reason she was called. Uh, uh, there's probably quite a lot. Oh, well, we all laughed at. Oh, she's dead. Uh, uh, the reason she was called Miss Blondell was a tiny little joke, uh, just for people who follow rock music as I have since the 1970s. There was a band called Amazing Blondell, and uh, when me and Jeff was writing it, we, she was, we had another name, and I said, "Call her Miss Blondell." And Jeff don't follow me. He said, "Why?" I said, "Just so at one point somebody can say the Amazing Miss Blondell." And that was all she was called, Miss Blondell. It is a French name, but it was purely, there's, there's lots in there, and we took, you know, <coughs> indulged in that way. But she was called Miss Blondell because there used to be a, a very esoteric rock band called Amazing Blondell. And that's all it is. So there you go then. So you left school at 14. Yeah. Who was the first famous person you met? Um, uh, the first famous person I ever met when I was about, and there's a photo of it somewhere, which I really should dig out for the next book. Uh, we were in Yarmouth, we used to go to Norfolk Broads on holiday. Uh, when we went away, it was always in Norfolk Broads, which I loved when, until I was about 10. Uh, and uh, we went to Norfolk Broads, and I was walking down Yarmouth um, uh, High Street. I used to go there, and there's this place that sold kippers and bloaters, and you could send them to any part of Britain. They'd box them up, put an address on, and you could send kippers and bloaters. Uh, and anyway, so we'd, we'd park up at the park, you know, more up in uh, Little Boaty Head, uh, you'd hire out. And I was walking down the high street in Yarmouth, and my old man, who was, wasn't a star shop, went, Huck! Oh, sorry, you, you can swear, can't we? I can't do me, old man, without swearing. Hucking hell! Look, it's Charlie Caroli, right? Yeah. Now, Charlie Caroli, uh, Charlie Caroli, very famous. He wasn't Grock, but he was Charlie Caroli. He was the old original clown and all that. And Charlie Caroli, now, I didn't know who Charlie Caroli was, but there's a photograph of me and Charlie Caroli, and Charlie's going like that. Uh, and I didn't know who Charlie Caroli was. We didn't go and, because that's the other thing. So he said, oh, we should go and, because he's handed out flyers. We should go and see him. That's right, fuck it, I can't bear him. But, uh, <laughs> that's me, I mean. But I met Charlie Caroli. When I joined the record shop, the first famous person was uh, two days after I started in the record shop, uh, Elton John come in. Uh, the thing that's in the book about Mark Boland then came in, and in 1970, you know, two, Mark Boland walking in the shop, you can imagine, well, Elton John walking in the shop. Uh, Jagger used to come in. But I've never had that thing of, uh, uh, of, of Oh my God, what did you say? Uh, you know, and I, so I never had that. And I saw Elton, funny enough, two weeks ago, and all he wanted to talk about was the record shop, because he used to work in a record shop before he was famous. And so I was in that society pretty quick, pretty quick. Um, and so Boland gave me his shirt, literally off his back, if you read the book, he, you know, he, he took his shirt off and gave it to me, because I said, it's a great shirt, and that's a star. Jagger stood there with this huge bouncer when he came in. Uh, there was a record, we used to sell imports. It was, it was smaller than this room, the shop. Uh, we were the only shop that did imports in London. And Jagger came in, 
And I, I got used to it. I thought, oh, Mick Jagger. Because the bloke I worked with in the shop, uh, he'd been there years and he'd say, uh, oh, yeah, he comes in all the time. Uh, and so Mick came in, have you got Dobie Gray's Drift Away? <laughs> so I said, he was leaning on the counter, I said, yeah, we have, yeah. Right, I'll have it. And he had this enormous bouncer look like the heavyweight champion of the world behind him. And the bouncer come and stood by him and I got the LP and I put it in a bag and Jagger got a five pound note out, gave it to the bouncer who was here. The bouncer took the five pound note, gave it to me who was there. I got the change, gave it to the bouncer, Mick put it back and went, thanks. And out he went, I thought, I, that's how I like my stars. Good and starry, good and starry. And so yeah, I, I was moving with them. In comedian terms, one of the first I met was Milligan, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. And uh, because he, I know he hates being, he's got notori he had a notorious reputation. Uh, and I think quite early on when I was uh, in London weekend and he was sitting in a, a, a green room with the ump and I went over to him and I knew what you, I had no qualms about going over to Spike Milligan, but I knew what you do with Spike Milligan. You don't say, Mr. Milligan, I'm a big fan of yours and all of that because that's it. And I went, and it was a line he used to use of himself. And I went over and I said, Spike! Still alive? <laughs> and he went, yeah, man, still alive, sit down. And I thought, boom, I'm in. I said, uh, so you moved out, because I'm from Deptford, and he's sort of new across Catford. And we got on fantastic. We did used to treat people. Someone else come and sat down. And there's a thing in the book about a very famous comic who came over when I was with Spike one night and stood over my shoulder and said, uh, uh, could you introduce me? And as far as I saw, he, he was in a sour mood anyway. But, uh, and I said, uh, this is one of the good ones, Spike. Uh, is it going to be a big old star? And Spike, who are you? So he said, and he said, uh, I'll tell you when we turn the mics over. So he said, uh, uh, he said, I couldn't let this moment pass without saying you were, oh, no, I'm a genius. So he said, no, but you're a big influence on me. I wouldn't be doing what I do without you. And I had to meet you. And he put his hand out and Spike took the tips of his fingers and went, all right, you met me, fuck off. <laughs> Honestly, I know it wasn't funny. And I said to him, why do you do that? Oh man, I'm sick of it, you're a junior. I don't know. Absolutely awful. Mate, I got an autograph off of Spike once at his house. He made out he was part of the crew because he wanted to meet him. Did fine until at the end of the thing he said, uh, Mr. Milligan, would you sign this? Call him Spike as well, don't know Mr. Milligan, but it's, it's, it's easy. So he said, oh no, is that what you're here for? Is that? And he said, no, uh, I mean, well, don't ask me for an autograph, man. He said, I've come by your house in two years, are you still going to have, and led off, and you had to say, oh, yeah, yeah, and out your storm. And so that reputation was entirely, uh, uh, you know, warranted. But I got on fantastic yeah. with him. Absolutely fantastic with him. Uh, it's funny, I saw him at one of the, the last things, he was at a sort of charity thing, and, and he was sort of quite, frail then yeah. and, and this guy I thought god don't do this man you know and this bloke went up to him with about yeah. a pile of about 10 goon show records and he literally sort of looked up and started signing one and just saw this pile and just Fuck off. Yeah, I know. Like that. And I thought that looks like the rest of his life, man, with that one memory like, in his head of Spike being like that. But to be fair, but no, no, so, so few I've ever, you know, absolute giants are like that. And Milligan's not like that. It just wasn't, he had no skills for that. And he always blamed being blown up and all that. Uh, but <laughs> no, he does. It's a good excuse, I <laughs> and, he, and he was blown up. He was blown up. Uh, if Lee Harvey Oz would have gone into stand up, he could have got away with anything. <laughs> anyway, but uh, so, <laughs> he, but, uh, but most of them weren't, and, and, and as I say, the, the the idea that I kind of, the, the thing I've had over, because I still write for what we can call contemporary comedians, mm. but nobody really, even from, I've name dropped, and I was talking to Stephen Friday the other day, and I don't know Stephen very well, I even predate kind of that era of the, of the, of the new comedy, the alternative comedy, and I really did work with Kenneth Williams and Malcolm Wise, work with him, you know, I was on shows with him, I met him, and I kind of knew him, uh, and, and so that's, 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 I was just at that cusp, and doing a show like the Six O'Clock Show, which after the NME and all of that was, you know, going into Civilian Street and just working on a 
you know, you know what the six o'clock show is like. It's like the one show, but uh, but all those people came through, all of them, you know. And uh, that's even though I've met Mel Brooks at the NME and things like that. And so I had the advantage of actually working with Bernie Winters and people like that, and doing panto with Daly and Wayne and things like that. So that, that I really was grateful for that because I don't have to romance them. It's quite nice to be able to say, oh, now I can tell you some stories about them. Well, you mentioned uh, TV heroes. I mean, you start with a clip from one of my favourite episodes, that the Peter Glaze Oh, gosh, yeah. I, I, it's one of the... That was a lovely series. Ten minutes, these things, and it could never, written, it could right? never be done. Yeah, they were, they were, because I've never written for myself on television. There's no, I've, got, I don't have, nobody asked me to, but I've never, I've no, those I wrote for myself, and the things I do at BBC Four, brushing up and things like that. Uh, but those, yeah, they were beautiful, but they'll never be done again because that was when the BBC. Mel Brooks said this. He said, you, um, but two, two Mel Brooks stories. First one was. Um, <laughs> First time I met Mel Brooks, I was working in ME, and I didn't want to talk to rock stars anymore. It, it was getting, it wasn't nourishing any longer, and so they said, "Well, what do you want to do?" And I said, "I want to talk to comedians," and I did Bob Monkhouse, and Bob was just extraordinary, of course. Uh, I went to see. Uh, 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 family fortunes and straight afterwards it, I was some kid at the NME and he, afterwards he took me out to dinner and he said come up next week and we went to his house he gave me all the time in the world asked me about you know uh, did I have a you know, I remember he asked did I have a video of um, uh, uh, spare the cup of so that for, uh, Will A he didn't have it and I remember getting, getting that oh, no 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 no. what's the uh, Wait, where, uh, uh, the, the Will Hay police one uh, ask a police sorry uh, so yeah so I sent that to him uh, and then I, uh, Mel Brooks come to town and, and I said yeah I'll go and do Mel Brooks and I met him at the Claridge's and uh, I went there and Joe Lustig was his manager never forget and I, again I'm just some kid and, and then Mel Brooks is sitting there how are you doing so I said um, alright not bad anyway. and so you, know, you got and you think okay I'll, I'll, I'll try and hang in there we're going to have something to eat and then we'll just go walking around is that alright so I said yeah and it, what's your name and I said Danny Baker and he went wow oh what is your name? And I said, it's Danny Bain. Oh! And I thought, well, he's doing his business here. This is in, this is in Claridge's. I don't... You're telling me your name's Danny Baker? So I said to him, you're not just... Uh, you're, and I said, honestly, and I'm laughing. I mean, you know, it's a but it's a, I can't, I, I can't believe... Do you know the very first thing I ever wrote, ever, for television was called The Secret Life of Danny Baker? <laughs> and I said, oh, and he said... Anyway, I've looked it up on the internet, and it really is. It's there. He made a pilot, uh, a program called Danny Baker, and he kept looking at me. He said, your name's Danny? I said, yeah. I said, why did you pick Danny Baker? He said, it was the most Gentile name I could think of. <laughs> no Jew has ever been called Danny Baker. He said, it was the most white bread name. He said, and here you are. Well, again, the dumb luck, if you've read the books, you know, the dumb luck I've had. We went out that day, I took him down to Mayflower in Rotherhide the following day, everywhere. I met him again about two years later, and he said, uh, as, uh, but before that, I went out down to Mayflower, and he kept saying to passers-by, you know who this is? This is Danny Baker! I saw him two years later, and he was getting made up for another show. I walked in, I thought, well, he ain't gonna remember that. He went, Oh! He said, this guy, and he never forgot us. Uh, so, as I say, I, I got a chance to move, move with him, and the Tommy Cooper story you probably read in the book, which is... Oh, uh, tell it, please tell it. Well, as I say, it, it is that thing of, um, when people say they're... Uh, Do you want to drink that before we go on? Yeah, yeah. I'll absolutely can we, strangle one. Can we, can, uh, can, we get, can we get a beer for the guests, uh, please? Sorry, so, or, or a water or something, yeah. He, uh, he was, uh, Tommy Cooper, I only, uh, only met twice, but the first time, and, and the thing I tell the story is, uh, because when people do that thing, when any comic dies, they say, he didn't have to say anything, and he was funny. Well, that isn't true, that isn't full stop, that sentence can end there, except with Tommy Cooper. 
but it's not a good thing necessarily because we were sitting in a little gallery uh, during rehearsals at the six o'clock show and Tommy Cooper's our guest, terrific. Uh, and everyone's very excited and more people than needed to be at rehearsal at rehearsal. And it's, the gallery is that little area where the director sits and the PA and the producer and they all sit with all the televisions in front of them. And there's a little tiny glassed off area behind. Narrow is this, very narrow. And we're all on these bench seats and there's this gap and the phone goes. And somebody says, um, Tommy Cooper's in reception. Uh, and so my friend Jim, who was, I'll go and pick him up. So off he goes. And now we're all sitting watching rehearsal thinking, Tommy Cooper's coming, Tommy Cooper's coming. And we're all trying to, oh no, we're pros, we'll all sit here. A few minutes later, door opens into the uh, gallery, and there in the frame is this enormous fella. In, I mean, he's a very big man, coat over his arm, suitcase in his hand. I think it's Tommy Cooper. <coughs> and he stands at the door. <coughs> and we'll go, hello. <coughs> <coughs> Shall I sit there? Right? So we all go, <coughs> yep. <coughs> Do you mind if I sit there? <coughs> I'll sit there then. <laughs> and he sits down. <clears throat> and I've got a bad back. Right? So we all went, <laughs> No, I have. And we did that. And we did that. We laughed even more. And he's, he was with a PA woman who said, Tommy, you know, she gave him a little hip flask. And he went, Ugh. <coughs> been killing me all day. Right, and, you, and we're all going, <laughs> and you thought, what a curse. You poor, poor, but by the same token, this, this suitcase he had, it was bright yellow. <coughs> I'll be all right for the show. <coughs> Can I put this there? There's a little shelf, so we said, uh, if you want, <coughs> I'll put it over there if you like. Because he, he, he talks like that, you see, and so we're thinking, is he? This, this poor fella, you know, talk about King Midas. Yeah. We're going, no, put it where you want. <coughs> Don't let me forget it. So we said, we won't. <laughs> we won't. And he put it on this shelf, and it was made of the flimsiest rubber you've ever known. It was, and it went down to nothing. And he went, that's good, that, isn't it? That's good. That's good, that. I'll use that. And he didn't. He didn't use it on the show. He was just carrying it around. And I met him once more in similar circumstances. And that thing they say, he didn't have to say anything. But, you know, it, it must have been a curse. Because when he tried to say, I've really got a bad... I mean, if I, I've got a bad back, I really have. It's been at me all day. Nothing. When he leaves that gap and goes, <coughs> Been hurt me all day, and you go. <laughs> it was, and that's when. And fortunately, I've got the kind of uh, uh, memory that re retains that rather than. And so when we came to the books and Cradle to Grave, how do you remember all this? Because as my friends will tell you, I tell these stories all the time, and I was all very because I was such a comedy kid from the age of four, as a, like yourself as an observer, as a curator. I was aware that you, you, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I don't remember a lot about it. I was aware from the moment people like him walked in or Peter Cook walked in. Unfortunately, I could do, uh, 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 without making it seem like I was blowing smoke at them, I knew stuff. That's how I got to be such good friends with Kenneth Williams. Or as he refers to me in the diaries, just Danny. Everyone else, if you go, in, if you go, the, if you go through, I'm never Danny Baker, you know, because he'll say, did the Asp he hated Asborn, Asborn hated him. <laughs> I remember the day, the day Kenneth Williams, the day did Mark, I, I, very few, he hated Kenneth Williams. And Kenneth Williams, it was a mutual loathing. And the day Kenneth Williams died, it was a Friday, and Asborn came into the, um, or maybe on Monday, because we did two meetings on the 6th of October, Monday, it was a Friday, there you go. It was a Friday, uh, and, uh, and, and we had a meeting, and you know, just to say what's the final running order of the show. 
And Aspel came in, he put his coat down, how is everyone? And somebody just said, oh, uh, Michael, uh, Kenneth Williams died last night. He went, oh, how terrible. So what's on the show? <laughs> and he did it like, he went, oh, how terrible. What's on the show? He did it like that. And we all thought, oh. And he went, well, I, I, I didn't like him. And he didn't like him. But I got on a game tremendously, I'm sorry to tell this story, but for a bit of dumb luck, when we had to uh, film, if you sort of six o'clock show, it was like the one show, a little bit spikier, if you like. It couldn't be any less, could it? Anyway, so, it, um, uh, and we, uh, and I thought, it was 1982, three, and I thought, I'm going to meet Kenneth Williams. Last thing on the call sheet that day, we're doing a thing about Coleman or something. Last thing was getting Kenneth Williams to say, oh, because if they had a product out, they would do a little bit on film for us, align themselves with what we're doing, publicity. And it was going to be Kenneth Williams in the Albury Theatre at four o'clock. But we were still in Poplar doing... Uh, actual coal yard at about 20 past three and we had to be in Shaftesbury Avenue at four o'clock now I knew even if the crew didn't you don't do that to Kenneth Williams it was about this time of year it was getting dark and I thought there's no way we're going to get across town it's before mobile phones the Albury weren't picking up their phone they'd opened up four especially and put Kenneth Williams down in the bar nobody was there we got to Shaftesbury Avenue about about 10 past five and he'd been there yeah he'd been there since quarter to four and we all and they'd been, we pulled up and got all the gear out and we've gone and we couldn't find anyone and then a woman came out and said, are you the people for Kenneth Williams? And we said, yes, we are. There's about six of us, you know. He's not in a very good mood. He's, he's downstairs. Oh, shit, he's still here. We went down the stairs into the little bar at the Albury. Half light. Kenneth Williams had a Mac on, and he was sitting there like this on a stall by the bar with the, with the Kenneth Williams face. <laughs> and we walked down the stairs, and the director walked down there first. And he went, uh, Mr. Williams, I'm saying, it's, and he really did do it, it's a disgrace. If you think I've got nothing better to do than sit around while you plebs go out and use your own time pissing it up at lunch, I can smell it from him. He started long. The only reason I'm still here is I can tell you what a shower of shit you lot are. And if you think, anyway, cut back, cut back to about. <coughs> 15 years before it, I'm um, um, eight, and Kenneth Williams uh, had albums out, he used to have, and we used to belong to the uh, record library, the actual library, it used to be a record library to get records out, and uh, one of my favourite records was called On Pleasure Bent with Kenneth Williams, an album he made of uh, comic songs and sketches, and it's really charming. Uh, Rudgeon Hills did some of the stuff for the writing for it, and I used to love that album, I knew it off by art, but there was one sketch on the B-side, track three, I think, and it, uh, and it was a, uh, an old, he was playing an old lady going, oh, I got up this morning, put my foot on the floor, it was like plugging in the mains, all up one side, oh, it was, my iris will tell you. Went downstairs, oh, well, it was off my iris will tell you, and uh, I walked out into the kitchen, oh, I bumped my leg, my iris will tell you, and, and that was how it went on. And so when he drew breath during this terrain, he was going, it's the worst, I'm here, I've got nothing, but I'm, as far as your fucking show's concerned, I'm the biggest star you're ever going to have, you treat me like this. And as he drew breath, I went, my iris will tell you, he went, how do you know that? <laughs> and I said, oh, Mr. Williams, so that album, and he went, oh, you come over here, leave these ponces alone, I'll tell you. <laughs> it turns out, that was the only sketch on the album he wrote. Uh -huh. He wrote, I'll tell you what, they didn't want that on the album. Anyway, after that, we were fine, he said, oh, I'll tell him I'll do it. He said, tell the truth, he said, I've only been in about five minutes, I keep going over the bookshops. I've had a wonderful time, but don't let them fucking know that. Uh, he said, I just walked in, so I've still got my coat on. I just walked in where you walked, and it was fine. And we, got, but that dumb luck again. Mel Brooks, first thing he wrote, Danny Baker. No, I remember that one thing, I'm now Kenny Williams. But that's Williams, not dumb luck, that's knowing the person's it is, career it, and loving it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah but it, it, no, I'd, I'd say there's a lot, a lot of luck in that. He could have turned around and said, oh, fucking shut up, don't try and cheer me up. But he, in fact, it was the best thing I could have said. Yeah. And Mel Brooks, who, who knows? And it's been like that with a lot of them, you know? I say, Santa Milligan 
uh, still alive. It just, it, uh, but I was, yeah, I was aware that uh, uh, it, it was a, a good thing to say, but I wasn't trying to curry favour. It's just that's what you say when you mean someone, Absolutely. I suspect. And we showed a little bit of the, the Peter Cook interview from mm. uh, Danny Baker after all. Another. Which is which uh, one of my uh, heroes. And I mean, it, yeah. that's, that's not bullshit. You generally meant that he, want, he was your first guest. You wanted him to be your first guest. I wanted him to be. He, he wanted loving. to come back. He wanted to be a roving reporter for the programme. Oh, he was, he, you know, he really did. And God knows, you know, that series was uneven. But um, because, you know, uh, I ain't being funny, but me listening ain't, ain't where the money is, you know. <laughs> and, uh, That's my job, is it? The BBC put me in a wrong neck jumper and going, OK, what am I going to do? OK. They didn't know what to do with us and still don't. But so, um, uh, but Peter, yeah, I knew him uh, again. Uh, I knew him before that. Uh, uh, and because uh, I used to go in the coaching horses during the notorious period with Jeffrey Bernard and, uh, and uh, Tom Baker used to be in there and, and yeah and you know so I, I knew him from them but I knew him in, in a strange way because he uh, one day he was in there and the first time I was in there he had a carrier bag with pornographic VHS's <laughs> about five of them I mean they didn't know boxes it was in the days when you went to uh, the places when so was like that and rented them out for £25, as long as you brought them back the next week. And, and, and I happened to notice, because I started work in Soho in 97 and 99 D Street, and one of them was next door, run by a fellow called Maltese Tony, who I still saw around. So I, I kind of had that... So he, he got up, and he, I said, where are you going? And he used to say, I'm going to uh, replace, replenish my pornographic video collection. He would say that. And I said, where'd you go? There's a place down on... I said, here, come with me. I said, I'll introduce you. I said, what are you paying? £25, come with me. And I took him up Dean Street, into, and I said, Tony's a friend of mine. He didn't know Peter Cook. Maltese Tony didn't know Peter Cook. Okay. I said, he's paying £25. Oh, no, 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 £5, £5. £5. Now, that's a very... It's, it's a grubby way to introduce Peter to be, you know, to give a Peter Cook story. However, Peter Cook being Peter Cook, every single time I saw him after that, and someone would join our, 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 our company, and he would say, uh, I don't believe you know Mr. Bake here, London's finest pornographer. <laughs> and I had to say, no, no, what it was, no, no, one word from him, and masturbation stops in half of the counties below the River Tyne. And people go, what? Oh, his string of shots that he is more proud of than Paul Raymond. And every single time, people go, oh. And then, you know, I got fed up and said, no, no, what it was, was I knew this fella. But yeah, so Peter Cook, yes, of course, you know, he was, he was like that. And I never saw, I never saw people said he could be like, you know, uh, spitfire. I, ne I never, ever saw that. Tremendous, well, he tremendous company. Well, plug in the Derek and Clive video, which you rightly point out had been out previous to the yeah. official release. Um, yeah. But he just comes out and just lights up a frag before you even ask your first no. question. And he's like, oh, God, I love him. I but but, but love equally, you know, like those shows, shows aren't like that as well, because I've been in the green room with him for an hour beforehand. And he would say, you know, he would say, ask me about, he wouldn't give any answer, ask me about this, ask me about it. Not exclusively and then forget on the air why it was, because he would just take off like that. But I even knew. I mean, we had other, you know, Hollywood stars and all of that. But by the same token, it, it, was, it was extraordinary even then. You know, you could say, we, uh, get Peter Cook on. Oh, what, the guy from... It, it's Peter Cook, for the love of God, you know, for the love of God. Uh, and, and it's still like that, I suspect, you know, which is why uh, uh, talk shows are, are all headline and, and you know, <coughs> all, all froth, no beer, which is fine. Because there's still people around now who you think, well, it, it's, it's a talk show and they can really talk. They can really talk. But you'd have people like Kenneth Williams who would come on to Wogan or whatever or Parkinson yeah. before that. Because they knew they could do the anecdotes but, for the last 10 minutes. Well, Robert, the thing is, it's, it, it, it's to work, not appear. And that, that's a concept which is vanishing. I mean, it's vanishing. You work, you don't appear. You just presume 
you've got to go on there and deliver something other than your presence. But that is kind of going further and further away. And the whole pre-interview thing, which is shocking, you know, a few times I'm asked to be on there, I say, no, no, believe me, it's called conversation. Ask me whatever you like, believe me. Or what, can we call you at home? Can we come around and see you? Can you get here at two hours earlier? And that is a real stifling hand. Because we rehearsed this this afternoon. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, <laughs> about three minutes before we started. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, you're right there. No, but... yeah, it, it, it is that. And I always presume that, uh, and get out, do half an hour, get out of people's way and move on. Uh, and have the stuff, because that's what you're supposed to be able to do. So if you say, you know, some left-field question, you're supposed to be, quotes the talent, who can then engage the audience, you know? But... Uh, but we don't need to go down that avenue because we know where telly is and is exhausted and who thought it would last forever like rock and roll. Indeed. But, I mean, talking about TV in terms of just showing old stuff, I mean, there, there are old things on. But old films, you mentioned Will Hay and George Formby. Yeah, yeah. They're not on TV now, are they? So there's a generation... No, but they are around, up. to they're, be absolutely honest. You can find them if you want. They're not on TV. You've got to search them out rather than be but given them. But you've got to remember, Robert, TV's not on TV anymore, you know? <laughs> it isn't that. It's not in its gift to either introduce this stuff. Uh, if there were a dedicated comedy channel, are people going to watch it other than, you know, people like, I don't know. So I don't think necessarily, I mean, that Laurel Hardy films that are touring, and by the way, I went to one of them the other night, and they, it was uh, Way Out West and um, Toad in a Hole. Yeah. They put on Way Out West first. Don't put the main feature on before the show. What's the matter with you people? Uh, <laughs> I told them on the night, but they didn't want to listen. Anyway, um, they, they do pretty well. And I don't think it's necessarily... I mean, it's, it, it, I, th I think, like, music, like jazz, like anything else, it's never going to have that mass appeal after its initial flourish. Yeah, if we watched the Marx Brothers in the 70s on television, uh, but that was probably in the nature of the beast of television rather than and the gift, and how fortunate we were, rather than... You know, I was talking to someone today, no, yesterday, uh, about uh, Jackie Leonard, the American comic. If you look at Jackie Leonard, and he's he's forgotten now, and because uh, how would you see him? Because he only existed really live. You can see him on some of the old Hollywood palaces. Yeah. But I only came across him a year ago. But I'm sure if I'd have met a Jackie Leonard fan ten years ago, he said, "Oh, there's the tragedy." Thank God, it is still out there to be discovered. Because once we know everything, as people think they do now, that, then what are you left but with? But me, growing up in the sort of 80s. Six o'clock on BBC Two, you'd have Arthur Askey film or, you know, an Arthur Lucan movie well, or something. I said the, um, about TV heroes couldn't be made now because, and then I got off into the Mel Brooks thing, uh, and it was stories. What I meant to say uh, was that he said to me during the actual day, he said, um, you know the greatest thing about this country, the BBC, he said. I said, he said, you know why? He said, because it's, it does something that nowhere else in the world does. <clears throat> And I said, well, you know, the kind of concept. No, no, no. He said, they do this thing. I remember him telling me, he said, the first time I came to this country and I looked at your programme listings, programmes begin at 8.05. They begin at 8.25. They begin at 8.50. He said, nowhere in the world. He said, it's just blocks of television. He said, but I've come over here and you have a programme finishes at 6.45, then there's a five-minute uh, cartoon, and then there'll be ten minutes of something else, and then the news starts. And he was so alight about that. Now, that's pretty much vanished. And TV Heroes used to be on uh, before the 9 o'clock news. They had a programme that ran up until 8.50, and then we were on. And so that, as that's why I enjoyed writing it. The challenge was to try and almost do a tribute and a salute, but perhaps something else to somebody in 10 minutes. But where are you going to make a 10-minute programme now? Online, of course. But there was a time, and that was one of the last times, when the BBC did used to say 8.05, you know, wagon train or whatever it was, and then that would last about 8.35. It's just when programmes were long enough, and then, then you put on something else. But it wasn't like half hour, half hour, hour, hour and a half, which is what we've now, of course, gone into. 
And it was one of the early shows that used archive really well because I, I was seeing stuff, the Derek Gala stuff, for example. Yeah, yeah. Really rare. Well, that wasn't me, of course. That was the trem- there's a woman called Caroline Wright, who I work with a lot, and she is head of archive at the BBC. And they they've got this archive, but it, it's like when I, um, the, the brushing up series, which I like a lot, and they were um, and she called us up and said, look. Look, they want me to make these programmes about, and they're just so boring. And I said, "Watch me, well, they want one about bridges, one about tunnels, one about uh, pathways, another one about statues." I said, oh. <laughs> "I said, send me what you got." And she said, "Oh, I hoping you was going to say that." And they sent round all these programmes that just had people walking along bridges, and and I got to say, I was so pleased because it was, you know, I write for a lot of comedians, but to actually think what we're going to do with this. And some, and that, apart from Park and Cradle to Grove, the brushing up series, mm. I was so pleased with it. But that came from the BBC saying, we've got this stuff. There you are. Yeah. There you are. Have we seen these shows, the yeah. brushing up? I don't know if you see it. Well, brushing up. But they came out of the, the, the archive department being kind of ignored on a floor in, in broadcasting house, as it was. And, uh, and they just said, well, what, what should we do? They said, well, we've got all these old news programmes and stuff, but all, the, all that is is people walking along towpaths. Towpaths! <laughs> there it is. Uh, and, that's what, and that's how they came about. And it was the same woman. She just has a great little team who find this footage and say, there are. And that, again, how, how long is that going to last? Where they just say to someone, there you are. It's all yours. We'll see you in the studio. Uh, uh, and I, I suspect, well, I know, because I've just done things for other people. It don't work like that anymore. We don't get it. One of the episodes... <laughs> know what they say? They won't get it. Uh-huh. I, I understand, yeah. but the audience, they do really do say that. Like, there's this kind of chasm where you're all sitting over there. Oh, <laughs> what does that mean, honestly? Yeah. I did, I sent, oh, well, I won't because it was identified a programme, but I've just had a nightmare of saying to someone, no, it's you who don't get it. The audience will be fine with that. Yeah. They'll get that entirely. It's not me, it's, and they always want to pass it on. But it's a whole dumbing down thing that's always talked about, but it is, they treat the audience like... Idiots, well, I don't. Idiot. I'm not necessarily. Uh, I don't necessarily go along with that because you can find. Most, I think the form has com- so radically changed that you you have to be careful. You're not asking people to listen to Carl Perkins in an era of Lady Gaga because that's fine too. I do. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. But 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 I don't think it's necessary. I I just think it became exhausted, like Music Hall did. You know, like screwball comedies do. They still exist, but you can't. Uh, if you lament the machinery. You're missing people who are doing pretty good stuff all over the place. So I'm not necessarily, I don't think it's necessarily better now. I think that's the arrogance of chronology. But I, uh, I also can, do believe in golden ages. There's no doubt the golden age of the musical was in Hollywood, you know, 1930 to 1950. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no doubt uh, that there was a golden age of uh, rock music, if you like, between 19. <coughs> we're not going to see that again between 1965 and 75 that explosion, the counterculture explosion, and there was a golden age of television. But that's not necessarily to say, you know, you still can't pick and choose. There was less of it, and there was also bad stuff being made at that time. So yeah, yeah, oh, God, the, that's the, the thing. The good stuff That's the, the top, thing. For every, you know, likely lad, you forget there, there was also uh, uh, Meet the Wife or... or, or come Home, Mrs. Nora. Yeah, yeah come back, exactly. Yeah. So that's what you've got to be careful of. We, we tend to have our memory radio times only open up programmes like that. But, uh, you know, and I can't talk with some of the old top I've made. But, uh, <laughs> no, a word, that can't, a word that can't be spelt, by the way, too. You, you wrote the links for TV Hell, mm. didn't you? So that was... That was yeah, uh, I did TV. That's how, that's, how I started badness, writing, yeah. that's how I started writing for Angus. Mm-hmm. I wrote for Angus Dean for a very long time. And the funny thing was when we used to be out at Angus, because uh, if, you, you know, if you're writing for Angus Deaton, every single, every single syllable has to be checked. Every I must be crossed. And he'll sit and he'll go through it and go through it and go through it. Whereas if I'm writing for, say, Chris Evans, that's just great big slabs of colour. 
we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. Uh, but Angus, um, when I wrote uh, with him, we, we met on that. Uh, and I, he actually saw me, because I used to write the Comedy Awards as well with Jonathan Ross. And uh, we kind of met there. And we used to go out afterwards sometimes, and it's the same when I'm out with Stephen Fry, and people who know me, well, that, that's fine. But most people think, what? I don't get that. Uh, and people have come up to me in Angus and saying, well, well this is a culture clash. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Oh, go then, governor, you know, fly me. I know, really. And, but, so, but that's, and my, and my wife always used to get terrible, she still does. Um, I wrote, um, I don't know, like the Evening Standard Awards the other night, and Wendy still says, it drives me because they were quoting some of the things that Rob Brydon was saying during it, and that's all right, you know. Uh, oh, but I hear people don't know you do. I said, well, it don't matter. Your job is to, uh, uh, you know, to make the turn look bulletproof. That's all you're there for. It's never bothered me in the slightest whether I get credit or not. And I mean that. Got paid, yeah, not credit. And I'll, <laughs> no, that's, the, that's it. You, uh, so, and she used to go, oh, no, it's all right, you know, you wrote that, and nobody knows it. I said, when, what's your favourite film? Gone with the wind. Who wrote the screenplay? Mm. <laughs> ah, and so that's it. And, uh, and there's probably uh, uh, that's dying out as well because we're right, we've come to saturation point with stand-ups now. Rather like in the seventies, singer-songwriters were dominated. When James Taylor came, everyone wanted to do their own songs. It don't work like that. Gorton and Simpson were not Steptoe and Son. Johnny Spate was not Alf Garnett. Dick Clement and Ian Lafrani are not the Likely Lads. And there's not quite enough of that. Everyone is doing their own material. Every stand-up writes their own. It don't work like that. And every, equally, every writer wants to be the star of the show. Not me, never, 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 never. Often, especially with something like TFI Friday, you know, Chris uh, will sit there and it's an hard day TFI Friday. It looks like it's slung together, but it ain't. And we'll sit in his dressing room and he'll be just when I say, right, I'm going to have a beer, you go and do it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's the arrangement I like. That has always been the arrangement I like. By default, I'll end up doing some things, uh, but uh, uh, I, I like that arrangement in writer. And, and turn, and that's how things work best. But I mean, you are a laid-back bloke, and you, you, you <laughs> oh, you're welcome, and you are, and, and you're, I mean, hell. no, you are, and, 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 <laughs> no, laid-back, and, and you are the most natural broadcaster we've got in this country, I think. And, and you know, I think you should be on all the time. Oh, bless you, no, because radio, yeah, I forgot, no, I forgot radio. <laughs> I do. I, I, occasion, I occasionally do, but that's another thing, you know. So, I, uh, Yes, I do. I, I mean, I do one radio show now. Uh, I've got every award you can get. They keep inducting me into Radio Hall of Fame, giving me baubles, but they won't give me work. And the terrible... No, they won't. And the terrible thing is now, Five Live decide to put football on Saturday mornings, I'm not in radio at all. Mm. <laughs> not at all anymore. And I would love to do radio every day. I would absolutely love it. And people say, oh, you're steamed out. Yeah, I steamed out because... Well, if, you, if I get into that story, it's just... It's it a is, long story. It, but, but, it's everything yeah, we've yeah, been talking yeah. about crystallised into two dopey people. Mm. And I refuse to do that. I, no, if you know, you know, I, I know what I'm doing, you know. Uh, and they didn't like the fact I wouldn't go off on when I was on BBC London. Oh, it, they come up with these dozy initiatives, you know. Oh, we're going to do... It's 50 years since Love Me Do, so we're asking all our hosts to play Beatles records. No, I'd do that anyway. So. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, uh, so we're giving everyone a copy of Number Ones, you know, the album with all the hits. And I said, well, I, 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 perhaps I won't do that. I'm like, well, we, want, we want you to do... They never ever used to get in touch with me at all. We want you to ask your audience, what's your favourite Beatles record? I said, really? Really? That? That? You know, uh, surely, you know, that's not how you do it. Anyway, that was how it started until they thought, who does he think he is? Well, I think I know what I'm doing for two hours in the afternoon on, on a local radio station. And it just came to the head when they said, oh, no, um, you know, we want you to go and talk about dog shit in Harangay or gang wars. <laughs> and poor old radio, as they say. And so, yeah, uh, and I totally reserved the right to... Uh, 
you know, people said, oh, he went mad on the air and he walked out and people, you know, there's just been uh, 10,000 people made redundant, uh, as they had been, a comment. And I said, look, that is a tragedy. Of course it is. You make 10,000 people redundant, that's a tragedy. You make one person redundant, that's personal. You know? <laughs> and, and I reserve the right. Uh, I reserve the right you to... Didn't, you didn't quite go Peter Finch and networked. I mean, it wasn't that bad, was it? No, I, mean, I tried... It was a real... It wasn't no, a it, off, it, but... No, it was actually very funny, I hope. Yeah, it, was. it was a very funny program because I ain't that dumb where I can go on there and go, oh, if you listen back, it ain't like that. I've never listened back to it. But because, but because I was with Balin and Amy, and Balin used to say, you're okay, you know, maybe, maybe you should have a lie down. While I'm, <laughs> but I'll tell him that during a record, I'm going to say this and I'll put stirring music behind it. And that's it. And I want to say goodbye to all of you. Uh, Dan, there's another half an hour. Oh, there's another half an hour. Okay. Uh, and, and that was the great thing. And the, and the, but the shame of it was, it was, it was that they, those two I used to do that show with, Balin and Amy, you know, BBC paid them £50. £50. And they put, so, £50 for a three-hour show in the afternoons. And I always thought... What, and when you saw rank after rank after rank after rank of executives coming in, and some of the nitwits they pay, and they would do it, and we would, that was a great show, and it was, and they would not, they would never give them the decency of either putting in the billing. They never did anything with them. They're great broadcasters. They still really haven't. Bainham's doing all right, but they used to come in, and once they took their fares out of that and paid their agent and a little bit of tax and bought themselves a sandwich, they probably did that show for about eleven quid a day. Uh, they probably did, and you say, well, no, I would, you know, God, I used, to, I used to get 500 pounds, right? But I used to take everyone out after every, honestly, the amount was spent on booze after every show, because we enjoyed each other's company. And so I'm getting 500, or right, so that's cutting half, or right, but that's all right. But you hear some of the people, because nobody gave us that blank canvas, and never will again. Uh, and God knows, it wasn't a controversial show. People still think what I do is, you know, shock jockey, like I'm John Gaunt or something. <laughs> they do. I said, do you ever hear these things? You know, do you ever hear these, uh, if you're Saturday mornings, you know, what we were doing yesterday? I can't, uh, have you ever accidentally knocked either your mother or father out? You know? <laughs> but that's the key to it. No, but that's the key to it. The key to it is don't be generic. All this nonsense we get now of, it's your show. Let's have your views. We're here for you. When people say, hang on, you're getting paid for it, though. Why are we going to make your show? No, that, that kind of abdication of responsibility drives me mad. Get in there, do the best show you can, get it out of the way and do another one, and then do another one, and then do another one. And that's it, because when I watch anything or listen to anything, I, just, I want to say, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. That's why they're doing that. And there's too much in telly and radio and everywhere else. You think, well, I don't get why he's getting... Who's this? Who's that? And so all you've got to do is continually... Uh, double cross the audience out, think them as if you get somebody who rings in and says, Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not, it was an accident, I knocked my mother out once, right? <laughs> now, that'll be one of a whole raft of suggestions, and that's it, don't be generic. Don't say, you know, what we're going to do to make London safer. That's an abdication of responsibility. People, it's not in your gift to make us, you know, always used to say, you know, right, uh, the media say, if you're not frightened, we're not doing our job. Uh, but, the, uh, but, but, if you, but what happens is if you've got those kind of subjects that only two people ring in, who cares if the phone lines are going like that? If you get two people ring in saying, yeah, I, I've knocked my mum and dad out, then everyone leans in and says, what? And that's radio. Not what everyone can call in, what only a few people can call in with. And that's what makes it extraordinary. But that didn't fit in with this kind of thing of uh, looking over their shoulders at the executive saying, oh, we're covering um, gang fights in Walthamstow. They could not understand why that was the most popular show on the station. But you're getting audiences and you're getting awards. Yeah, yeah. So oh, no, I was inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame the following week after that. 
Radio Hall of Fame, right? So, uh, and Peter Kay was, this is before Crowder Grove, he did a 15 minute, and all the executives were there, and BBC London, because they're weasels and pinheads, didn't, didn't, t- didn't turn up, their table was empty, cowards. And I did a smart thing, I did, because uh, I, I, I know how to work a crowd, and I went out, and Peter said, and everyone thought, oh God, it was only about four days afterwards, what's going to happen? And I walked up, and I, they gave it, they give you this basically engraved fruit bowl, it's like the one you get, is? Uh, God knows where it is now, because we said, oh, I ain't putting that, it's so ugly. Radio Hall of Fame, you know. Uh, so, uh, and I go, thank you very much indeed. And I said, oh, and I, oh, come on, here we go, here we go. And I said, you know what, um, this is a tremendous thing to have. And uh, uh, I know a lot of you are just thinking, uh, what's the next stage? You're probably aware what happened recently, but this is neither the time or the place. I'd just like to say thank you very much. Oh, that was smart, it made them feel like shit. <laughs> Abs- it was such a classy thing to do. BBC London went, oh no! Oh no, he sounds like he's, I talk about that. Oh, see that high ground? I'm occupying that. <laughs> That's what I did. Yeah, oh, it's neither time or place. No, no, leave it to them. Would you go back if they offered it to you? Mm. In a heartbeat, I swear to God, if your phone rang now, and they said, you're on, in an hour's time, I could do it, and I would. And I'd do it any amount of radio, anyone asked me. Nobody asked me. I had to get offered nothing, nothing in radio. I don't know, figure it out, I mean, I don't, I'd get offered nothing. And yet everyone, oh, he's the best day, oh, nothing. I get absolutely zero. You're just zero. too good, Dan. That's the oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's comforting. Phil <laughs> like, like, like Buster Keaton, circa 34 there. Nobody will. But I'll tell you, I, I can, in one way, I can understand it in this way, without labouring this too much. Right, everything, in, in, certainly at the BBC, is overstaffed. Way overstaffed, and that's all right. You get somebody who can walk in, or does walk in, I don't say can like it's, but that's the only way I know how to do it. I could explain how that came around, but five, uh, uh, five or ten minutes before going on here, and God bless Five Live, they still let me go in and don't ask me what I'm going to say, what we're going to do, what, they don't ask anything, and afterwards I'm out. So I get there ten minutes before I go on the air, I leave two minutes after it's finished, and that's fine, that's the way, I, but if you're self-contained, then you walk in, I mean, I've covered on a few people a couple of times on Radio 2. It did not go well. Me and Radio 2 don't get along at all. I don't like them, they don't like me. Because there's loads of people who keep ringing you up, do you know what you're going to be playing? Do you know what you're going to be saying? No, I don't. And when you get there, you just say, look, sit back, everyone. This is going to be terrific. It's going to be terrific fun. But they think, well, God knows, especially the execs, if he does all that, then people are going to say, well, what do you do? And I think there's a lot of that. And that's fair enough. All I need is, is someone like Mountain Goat or whoever used to sit on the other side of the glass, a couple of people answering the phones. That's it. That doesn't fit the model. That doesn't fit the model. And so I, the only thing I can put my hands is, well, people don't want that because it might seem threatening to their own position, which you can understand. But otherwise, no. For somebody who's won everything, keeps getting bleeding. I didn't go to the last Sonny's. They said, oh, you've won the broadcast for a year again. I said, well, I'm not going. I said, because I know I'll get on that stage and say, stop giving me these fucking things. Give, <laughs> give me shows to do. <laughs> and so I didn't go. I didn't go. Anyway. The first time you sat down in front of a microphone for a radio show, did you feel at ease? No, I was, no. It was, it was an absolute, always living fear. Those would be dug out. The first time I ever sat in, because I did telly eight years before radio, I had no concept of radio. Emma Freud asked me to go on her show. I was in the building. I was in what was GLR in them days. And Emma Freud said, uh, oh, Dad, come, come and sit down, because we've been talking about who's the greatest girl group of all time. I'm never forget. And I, I said, Watchman, just come and sit down. Sit down. And the record came to an end, but Arna Armour or the Supremes or something like that. And, and she said, um, 
I'm joined by my friend Danny Baker, who you probably know from the six o'clock show. Danny, um, uh, we're asking about girl groups. Who, who do you think are the top five girl groups? And you know that biblical term, his tongue cleaved to the roof of his mouth? <laughs> I found my mouth went dry. Um, uh, oh, I don't know. And I was, I was absolutely, she said, she put me, I said, I, 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 I don't know what happened there. I said, I thought, all well, this ain't for me. And then about three months later, for some reason, they asked me to come in uh, because I had a, a, a vacancy on the Saturday uh, at six, six o'clock in the morning on the weekend. Uh, someone called Claire Catford had uh, left and they said, would you come in at six o'clock in the morning? And I had absolutely no money then, none, not a tanner. You know, absolutely no. So, yeah, I'll do that. And I thought, because I'd never listened to radio, I'd never listened, I've never listened to radio. I've, I've never listened to Kenny Everett, I've never listened, I'm aware of them, I've never been a radio listener. I think it's because our family didn't have a car, I think. Uh, Two-way family favourites, but that did me no good. So, uh, and I went in with a big box of records, and um, two days before uh, I was going to, uh, they asked me to go in to see if I could work the desk, and I couldn't, because you've seen those things, there are thousands of faders. And, and I went in, and they said, we'll get somebody to come down and teach her it, and, and a fellow called Matthew Banner said, uh, could you come down, we've got uh, Danny Baker here, he doesn't know, he needs somebody to show him the desk, and the door opened, the Six foot two red-headed Mancunian coming, 18 years old. <laughs> Hello, my name's Chris Evans. Just come down to London. Nobody knew who Chris was. And that's how we met. And he said, I'll do it for the first few shows. He said, and so that Saturday, I just went in. They'd give me no guidance. And I put my records down. And I thought, OK, all right, here we go. And it's 6.30. You're listening to GLR 94.9. And I opened the fader. I thought, and I'd only ever heard cruising albums, which were representatives of Americans, and I just started yelling and shouting and calling Capital Radio gangsters with sores on their faces. And I said, new sheriff in town, you fascists, you Nazis. Oh, so, oh, so, so, so sorry, your phone. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Fuck the phone, my beard, Dad. That's the thing, never mind you. I do apologise, Robert. And I just started screaming and shouting and then banged in the first record, and I just thought, ha! And the phones went mad. Who is this? Disgraceful, disgust. And Chris said, you can't do that. I said, that's all I got. And I just started, I was so, some of them are still on. I said, scream and shout and scream. And from being a flatlined listening, the next couple of weeks they noticed, beep, People just they started listening. And then they hired Chris Morris uh, to follow me. And then they got Chris Evans, got his own show on this. And that became that golden era. But I literally, through dumb luck and thinking, well, you just, you've got to open the microphone, you better say something, started saying anything. And that's how that started. And I had no intention of going into the radio, none. And fortunately, that has now become a style. People think, oh, that's what he does. But it's because I can't do the straight information. I would have no idea how to hand over you know, or do but that's why it works. That's why it works, but thank no God. Thank God. It could have gone another way. It could have gone another way, but it didn't. But uh, I've been in radio since then. That was 1988. But as I say, it's only by the skin of my teeth these days. Literally by the skin of my teeth. Well, with you not on the air as much, there's a, a, a lack of Anthony Newley records on. Ah! Which is a tragic thing. Which, so, uh, which I've got, I got Newley in a couple of times, you know? I've got photos of me and Tony. Of, um, and he was doing absolutely nothing. Uh, he'd come back to England, he was working above a pub over in North London, literally doing cabaret nights above the pub. <clears throat> the, your next book should be about Newley. There's been a couple, but they're not, they never get to where the money went. And I don't understand. With Newley, I, I adore Newley, and people got big, broad images of him. But Newley, I, I, you know, 
he was the first person to record a Beatles song, uh, other than uh, he did. I, I saw her standing there, and but newly, as we know, he needs no selling from me. He, he, Nina Simone's, you know, birds in the trees, you know how I feel. It's a newly song. Goldfinger is a newly song, apart from newly himself. But he ended up playing above pubs, and he played 17 years in Vegas, $150,000 a week. Him and Joan Collins had the marriage, but she didn't take it. And I've always wondered. How did Tony end up doing that? And a wonderful, and he was still a massive star when I knew him. He was wearing army green shorts and a sloppy T-shirt and, and Jesus sandals. And he came in, he used to come into GLR and sit with us. And he always spoke about himself in the third person, which I loved. Always appeared to have a sesame seed stuck in his tooth. He goes, <laughs> Newly thinks, uh, and I love that. See, when, when you're dealing with Newly, and, and that, see, that was, you know, we were reaching back to an era that makes us feel comfortable. He would reach back to an era before I. Uh, the, I remember I saying to Tony, I remember saying to Tony Newley, um, so is it when you first play Vegas? I mean, is Vegas, all the all the legends are true? Or or Dan? When Newley first played Vegas, uh, he said uh, on opening night, he said the, the the guys with the flat noses like to give you a, a, do a big gesture. He said, so I finished. I knew nothing about it, and the flats opened at the back of the set, and they drove on a chocolate brown Cadillac with a big bow around it. And it was a limited edition Cadillac, and they drove to the front of the stage, and out come this fellow said, Mr. Nooley, the run here at the Riviera may it be the greatest run. He said, I'm looking at this car and thinking, I don't like it. He said, and I just thought, and I said, I went through it. He said, but I never drove that car they gave me. And I said to him, so what happened to it? And this is when you know you're in the presence of a greater power than we have these days. He mean, that car? Uh, oh, I gave, I, I think I gave that one to Kim Novak. And you think, oh, oh. He went, yeah, so I said, so you knew Kim? He went, uh, uh, yeah, I knew Kim. And you think, oh. And that's what I love. That, that, and he was, and then, you know, I'd have to say, so where can we come and see you, Tony? I'm above the White Bull in uh, Highgate tomorrow night. And just says, this fellow had been a powerhouse for all these decades. I don't understand. And his writing partner, of course, Leslie Brookers, lives in a solid gold house in Gestatt. Mm -hmm. But, uh, uh, I don't understand what happened with Newland, and I still don't think. I think people think he's a, you know, a, 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 what they call that, a guilty pleasure or all. It's absolute nonsense. He was I, don't, this... I don't believe in guilty pleasure. No, 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 like none of us do. None of us do. But that's how he's treated yeah, these yeah, days, yeah. like he's a, a, a comic. He's, he's uh, the best there ever was in this he's country. Just, I think, he is. He is. I mean, he was, uh, I mean, the very first number one in the States, people in the world, the first number one British record was actually Stranger on the Shore, Acker. Uh, on the food people called Acker, uh, and the uh, Acker built. Uh, but Newley was with, we stopped the world, of course, and Roar of the Grease Paint and all of that. He, uh, yeah, uh, but, but that's what we're coming back to about this idea of uh, amnesia amongst the public. I mean, nobody knows who Al Jolson is now. And if it can happen to Al Jolson, apart from a couple of, you know, if it can happen to Al Jolson, it can happen to anyone. The biggest star that's ever been, nobody remembers him. And it may happen to Sinatra, maybe not, but certainly there's, we, we have to be prepared for that phenomenon. Uh, uh, but uh, but Newley is certainly deserves more than than he gets. Well, I'm crowdfunding this book called The Forgotten Heroes of Comedy, which which covers these not Newley but but comedians particularly. Yeah. And you know, it worries me that there was a a, a load of chaps on um, this last week who didn't know who Kenny Everett was, or Dick Henry, or Frankie Howard. You're thinking, Christ, there's youngsters I, I guess, who don't know Kenny. No, Ford, I know. I guess, I, I guess, and it does make us gasp. But, you know, there, I mean... Time it, just goes on, it, it? It does, uh, and, and, and it's our speciality, so it does, but it's like um, a mole man's go-to uh, singer to get a laugh, get a laugh. It was always Donald Pierce, right? Now, Donald Pierce was a big star. 
Uh, but nobody. But my old man would always say, "Blimey, who's he? Donald Pierce, if he wanted to bring some, cut someone down to size." And I remember getting a laugh off of uh, Jimmy Tarbuck once when he was on stage, uh, and he brought me up, and I'll be doing something with him. Uh, and I said, "Don't you start, or I'll I'll uh, bring up those stories about you and uh, you and uh, uh, Dorothy Squires." That was, which is contemporary of his. And he went, but the audience were like Dorothy Squires, and it's such a pleasure, really. Be careful what you wish for. We're saying they should all be, but it's such a pleasure when you meet someone you can say Dorothy Squires, Donald Pierce, and they laugh. You think you'll do it for me? It's somehow it's a yeah, test. Yeah. yeah, some people are bigger than that, mm. but uh, and, and how people can not know Frankie Howard astounds me. But probably you have to keep going down the pile until, like, you and me could sit here and say, all right. I mean, I mentioned Daly and Wayne earlier, mm -hmm. yeah. who were the fourth act, uh, double act in the 60s. Everyone knows Mortimer Wise, of course. Everyone knows Mark and Bernie Winters, of course. Everyone knows Hope and Keane, probably. Yeah. Daly and Wayne. And I worked with Paddy Daly, the only person never to pay me. He ran out and he, he did. He, he, I did a pantomime Followed for him. Followed by me today. <laughs> there is, there is, I'm doing this purely for kicks. I'm doing this like working for BBC London for nothing at all. Uh, so, uh, uh, but yeah, the, the, but I like that. I actually like that because you know you're amongst a fellow traveller. Yeah. If you sit down on a plane next to someone and say, oh, I was watching a Dick Emery documentary and they don't, and they go, oh, dear Emery, and you think, this will do, this seven-hour flight's going to fly by. So, not going from Newley again, when did the last time you saw him? Because obviously he, he did the crime. He asked, I tell, the terrible much. thing is, I've got two regrets in that <clears> way, with him and Viv Stanshaw. <clears throat> Both of them asked me to come and see him not long before they die, and that's how it happens, you know, it can happen again next week with someone, you know? Um, but uh, I didn't go and see him, and he asked me to go and see him in that... Uh, he did the Café Royal in, in Regent Street, and he asked me to go to that, and I didn't go, because I figured I'd go next time. Viv Stancho asked me to come over and interview him for a magazine called The Face. And I thought, well, oh, do you know what, um, I'll see you later, and they both win. So uh, when you say that, when was the last time you saw him, there was a phantom last time, and I should have seen him, and I didn't. Uh, and I should have, you know, asked him to come over. I wish, you know, was, I, I treated him as a star as he was. I'll tell you an absolutely true story, and it sounds too pat. This sounds too pat, but this is absolutely true story. I was in reception of the old BBC TV centre, and I was going in, and Newley was sitting waiting to go in and do, not Pebble Mill, but something like that. And I said, Tony, oh, Dan. Newley was wondering when he'd see a familiar face. Uh, <laughs> and I sat talking with him, and John Burke, who was that time chairman of the BBC, came over. And I knew John Burke because he was the actual executive producer of the Six O'Clock Show, and I know John Burke pretty well. Uh, but he's very much corporate, and of course we know a lot of people blame him for what went on at the BBC. And John come over, Danny, how are you? He said, so you're doing this series? I said, yeah. I said, by the way, Tony Newley, and nobody ever says this in real life, and as a writer, I would never write this, because it's too pat. We carried on talking, and then Tony said something, and, and he said to him, I'm sorry, I didn't catch your name, what was it? He said that, he actually said that. It's like that phrase, do you know who I am? I don't believe anyone ever says. He actually said, I'm so sorry, I didn't catch your name. And I just thought, Oh, God, and that was, and Newley just went, um, uh, uh, Anthony Newley. went, oh, of course, of course, of course. But I just thought, there, there's a handover of power there, you know, that Tony Newley could sit in the BBC and somebody say, what is your name? Uh, and so that may be a microcosm of what happens in showbiz, but I think it'll happen again and again and again, and we're experiencing it when people don't know who Dick Emery is. I stood in the BBC and said, Crackerjack once, nobody went. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it does move on, but the fact is, you know, you, you can't lament it as much as congratulating yourself. You perhaps have got the upper hand when you have 
you know. Well, it's funny, we sort of bonded on Twitter over nudie, didn't we? So that was... Uh, no, really, yeah, and, 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 and Martin. We played that terrible thing, me and him. This is the first time we've really met. Uh, uh, it's the we, first time we met in person yesterday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, we, you know, we, uh, the f but we play that, you know, bit player poker. Don't we? You know, it's bit player poker, and as I can put an Esma Cannon punchline and think, well, that'll be Robert, that'll be all right, that, that'll do there. So we do play that game, and that's a lovely game. We'll start quoting Hancock's half hour. We did on the way in, I'm standing in the that. corridor while you're watching him clips. Right, dum, 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 here we go, bum, bum, bum. over the top. Uh, After so, a few beers, we're, we're quite good on Twitter, so follow us both, it's quite fun. Anyway, we're running out of time, Dan, and I, I want to throw it to the audience, so any questions? Oh, okay. To the please. Yes, gentlemen. Don't feel the need. Oh, hello, Dan. Uh, where are you? Oh, over here. Ah, it's Keepy ah. Baby. Oh, Keepy Baby. Baby Keepy. How you doing? How are you? Look, where's the old face furniture turn up? When was that? Blimey. How are you? Hi, mate. I'll have a, I'll have a chat with you. You bet. Um, last week, the bit on the Five Live about the soaps of the 60s, the Knights Castile. Oh, actual soaps, yes. Soaps. Yeah. Absolutely crazy. You need to do a brushing up on British soap. British no, if you didn't hear that, we uh, uh, because as I say, well, I get there quite late, and I never know what lenses. And there's a brilliant foil, and uh, uh, I can't remember how it came up. It was the first thing on the program. I said I never thought I'd live so long where I could mention Knights Castile, <laughs> and teenagers don't know I'm referring to Britain's leading bathroom product. And of course, Lindsay looks blankly at you. See. Come on, you'll be saying you don't know what Camay is next. And I said, well, Katie Boyle with the suds on her cheek, Camay. You don't know who Katie Boyle is? And I, and I know that's going to spiral out. And we did nights, got rights, coal tar. And we found, of course, uh, what's the one that's still going? Um, uh, Cusson's Imperial, Imperial Leather. That's still. Right? The fair, yeah, all of those. And so, yeah, a, a life boy. Uh, and, but see, the domino, it's only when you mention it now, if you'd ask us anywhere other time than under the limelight, the dominoes don't fall. But the dominoes start to fall. And she says, and you know, only 20% of the audience are probably with you. I said, Life Boy, Life Boy. And she said, I don't know Life Boy. I said, yes, you do, that advert on television where, you know, the man's throwing darts and the woman leans across and goes, B.O. Now that advert hasn't been on television since about 1966. And I say, that advert on television. And I don't care whether most people, but the audience who do get it think, what, what on earth is he talking about? And so, yeah, the, the whole thing, of, and we've got a good 10 minutes out of me being aghast. And of course, the more serious you take these things, the funnier they are. If you stand there and go, who remembers Light Nights Castile? But if you insist, it's still Britain's biggest selling soap. <laughs> Thanks, Keith. Yes, it was. Thank you. I, I, there, may be, there should be a brushing up on disappeared bathroom products. Yes, there should. Absolutely. Any more questions? Jay's Fluid. Oh, Jay's Fluid, I think, might still be going. Do you really? What's the uh, Red Cardinal? My mum used to do the doorstep yeah, yeah. with Red Cardinal. Ha <laughs> 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 ha! There you go, Red Cardinal. Still going. Still going. Uh, Here we go. We're, I think everyone wants to shoot. We're, we're, we're off rather than ask yeah. questions. The pub is open. There we go. On. Any uh, more yes, gentlemen, right at the back. Well, about three quarters back. Um, we saw uh, the disappearance of Ian Lee off the Airways, uh, in the last yes, that's right. Why are all the best radios? Well, you, yeah, but because, as I say, you, you, everyone thinks you can just step onto the internet and do it. it ain't quite as simple as that. Uh, the disastrous financial thing with a bloke who tried to put us on the air disappeared with all the money. Uh, 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 and, I, and, and also, I mean, I'm too old for myself to actually say, if somebody says, look, I'll give you a load of money to do it online, I'll do it. I'll do it. You know, uh, I'm not going to do it for nothing because I, I think that, that's outrageous at my at this stage of my career to do that. I'd love to do radio, but equally, 
I want to get as much as somebody's nipwits on BBC. You know, basically, a, you know, a good platform and uh, a, a becoming of it. I think Ian. I don't know. I think it is the same thing that, that you get. Uh, a management system that just are there to satisfy a pre-written brief. They are not creative people. They are. Uh, they certainly uh, resent uh, uh, the power of a talent, and that has got more and more and more and more. Uh, uh, that any kind of uh, a talent should be, as far as they're concerned, is at the far end of the feed uh, of the feeding chain, and you are there to be pliable and be good and do whatever nitwit meeting as. The BBC's got more meeting spaces than studios by a say like a 30, 30 to one tells you everything you want to know. But if but that if you start pulling at that thread, their whole lives become unravelled. And no executive is going to ever ever turn around and say, "Do you know what the problem is? Us. Let's fire us." They're never ever going to do that. So, it, but the trouble with Ian is, where's he going to go next? I'm, I'm like a Swiss Army knife. You know, I'm going out of that. So I started writing the books. Uh, I never thought it would come down to just one radio show, I'd always got that, and there's, you know, I'm actually going to do this on the road next year, I've decided, I've seen so many people doing this, uh, so I'm going to have a, 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 a piano player and I'm going to sing, <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, I, I'm going to, next year I'm going to do about 20 dates, uh, but yeah, no, because you, know, cause you, you may as well, because I've seen some people do it and... And then they're no good. But anyway, uh, but anyway, yeah, no, I, 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 think, I think what you're looking for, the good is a majority term. I think maverick is probably it. They will not absorb the maverick in case it becomes the norm. If it becomes the norm, then they don't, then they don't work. Yes, my friend. Oh, two things. First of all, um, is Robert auditioning for your for your nationwide gig now? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I'm actually going to have a solo. Uh, I'm going to yeah. solo. That's yeah, a yeah. solo gig. I don't need me, man. That's my, my main question was um, obviously now we haven't got Dick Emery, Normal Wisdom, lots of comedy heroes. If a BBC executive offered you your chat show again, what contemporary comedian? Would uh, you I, well, I, I wouldn't do it. I don't think I'm. Uh, I mean, I would. I, I would do it uh, as a one-on-one. -on -one. I wouldn't do that kind of. My next guest is because then you uh, you know the behest of saying. Uh, uh, you, know, you get the kind of people, it's that, that grab bag. I would do it if you could do it with somebody who might want to sit down and talk like this for an hour, 45 minutes. That's not going to happen. Uh, who would I get in now? Mm. Oh, uh, I actually did, I mean, a, a lot of modern comedians, um, and, and tell them what old rock stars too. I do a thing sometimes if I get old rockers on, whether it's Ian Anderson or Jet Rotow or Steve Miller or even Paul McCartney. I do this thing, which I've always liked, this blindfold jukebox thing where I'll make 20 tracks and ask them to call out a number and it will correspond with a CD I've made and there'll be obscure tracks, famous tracks, tracks they probably want to forget, but they feel they've, they've got the power then. Mm -hmm. They call it up. Uh, it started when I did Steve Miller mm. and I didn't want to just say, oh, you know, the Joker and all of this sort of London, stuff. It? it was BBC London. And Steve Miller was bored and they mainly are bored. Comics are a lot of time bored on shows like that. And it kind of gave the power to them and it intrigued them. But the very first time I did it with Steve Miller and I made all these things up of records he was on, guested on that he thought people didn't know about. And the first time I said, go on, I explained it to him and he kind of thought, okay, it's going to be a kind of wacky thing. And it wasn't. And I said, give me a number. And he said, I said, give me a number and corresponding track I'll play and you tell me about it. And he said, okay, number nine. And I put on number nine and it went, some people call me the Space Cowboy. It was, it was the Joker. It really was. And I laughed and he laughed and he said, oh, God. He said, well, okay, here's something I've never... And it, that 
all you've got to do is find another device because this kind of and I'm as guilty as anyone this sub sub letterman thing is finished this idea that it's a, 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 a the, the host is the star is over uh, and the idea that you can sit and do this and actually have a conversation there's a way of doing it who would I have on there's a lot of comics that I've on including a load of the modern set like you know like Rob Brydon uh, like Russell Howard like Peter Kay but they don't trust the current system. Now, whatever you think about those people, Michael McIntyre, they're not used to actually saying, I did it with Peter actually up in Blackpool. He said, I, I love the actor's studio. He said, I never, it doesn't, nobody wants to know me. They want to know the work and that's fine. Uh, and I'll tell you a story about that. We, uh, and, he, and Peter's very, very, very thorough, very meticulous. He even sent me like the cloth we were using on the table. We were at the Blackpool Opera House. He sent me the did you think these plants behind us? And he's really like that, Peter. He, uh, I'm doing this screen, I'm using these clips. He runs it all the way down the line. He said, now the thing is, this is being sold. I'm going to talk about my work for the first time. And, and even though it looks effortless and all the TV series, he said, I've got the clips worked out. He said, when I come on, don't keep me on the rails. I'm trusting you to keep me on the rails. Ask me about, because I trust you. You'll ask me about comedy. I know you'll come up. I don't want other questions, but just, I know you'll, okay, so we do it. So I was at the Blackpool Opera House. And uh, uh, no one's come to see me. Sold out in like eight seconds. Boom, big. So I go on, and I don't know, different perception of me perhaps. And I came out, <laughs> and I said, ladies and gentlemen, the thing is, you know, there are certain comedians, uh, despite what the uh, smarter set might like, there, there are people with funny bones, and this fella has it. You can't win the public over to this extent where you're in the Guinness Book of Records just by, you know, it's, no, it's not an accident, da da da. And tonight we're going to hope to. You know, lift the, we're not going to let daylight end up on magic, but we're going to lift the veil because here's a fellow who makes it look easy and perhaps that's the problem. Uh, da, 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 and I did about a three-minute thing, a couple of jokes, and I said, so please welcome to the stage, Peter Kay. And she came out on the side and the old... And as he walked out, he took the mic off me and he went, all right, how are you doing? He did 20 minutes. <laughs> and I sat there behind him. And he did, he said, what on that boot? I'm fucking hell, don't lift the veil. He said, what was it, seance? And I'm, and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at him. And they turned around at one point. I said, I'm going to fuck off this. And he went, no, no, and he came and sat down. But that's the, and I can totally understand it. He walked out, he thought, shit, in theory, this is great. It's a bit highfalutin. Yeah. But when he saw everyone that played, it's Peter. He just he did twenty minutes, and at my expense. And you totally get that. So coming back to your question, there is a way of interviewing people who go on in character and just given a little bit more. I would love to do that with say ten people, and even you know even terrible actors and actresses actually are really quite normal if they're not expected to fit into that format where, and now we're going to put this hat on you, the, you know, the, the answer hat, and you're going to, it's all that which is suffocating what used to be a talk show. But I, Peter Cook on the Clive Anderson show. That yeah, there you go, brilliant. there you go. But there's a terror that people are going to turn over. But if you, if you lose that, i.e. on BBC4, you could do it, uh, but then you ain't got any budget because you're back to the BBC London thing. Yeah, we'll let you work, but, you, but that's all right too. Uh, I'm in a position now where, yeah, I would, I would jump at that, but just let me in about four people make it. And, uh, but there's a tremendous willingness on behalf of celebrities as well to do that kind of show. They're exhausted with having to fit into, you know, the, the, this cookie-cutter kind of uh, uh, what James Corden does in America right now. Do you think the BBC would give you that chance? No, not in a million no, years. No, why not? Well, because no, it's not about me. I just think it's just the, the demands are telling you. As I say, it's not... It's not 1978 and now you know we don't come on at 805 that's it we don't come on at 805 you're 9 till 10 on the other side is i'm a celebrity get me out of here it, it, they don't want to offer an alternative 
but they just want to offer something bright and 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 also working within their means. They they don't know what we know, and I don't say that in a grand sense, but they don't know that. And, and why should they? Media net is a thing. It's not something you went into because you were funny in the army. It's not something you went into because you were great in that film last week. You go into it now because you, uh, you were taught it. And most of it is management. It's like running a bakery by, um, uh, or any business. You now go in and say, what's the biggest seller? Oh, um, uh, uh, you know, cupcakes. Right, clear the window, I just want cupcakes in it. And it sells out. Now, you've got to be pretty bold to say, you know what, those sort of um, Devonshire splits, with Devonshire splits, those de <laughs> cream horns, Devonshire splits, here we go. Uh, uh, those, those, uh, uh, those we were doing, yeah, you might get two of them over here, but it'll be full of cupcakes. And so, and, and we put a prize on uh, art and creativity that perhaps we don't on commerce, but now this is not the era of the opinion, it's the age of the fact. So, so do you, you seriously are. think the BBC will eat itself eventually into Spanish? I don't think it's the BBC's fault. I think everything we know is that the one thing you've always got to fight for is the BBC, the people like it. And, you know, you know when you've got BBC Four, BBC Two is still good. One does okay. It's not its fault that the, the thing there is so spread so thin. You know, it's not its fault. And uh, I think you're not really trying if you don't find three or four shows a week that actually are pretty good, you know. And, yeah, so coming back to the beginning, Cradle of the Grey was a, a pretty good series. Oh, it was a great series. On the same time as two or three other pretty good series as well. Uh, and probably that's about right. That's all it ever was. The idea that everything was on at the same time, that uh, following Morecambe and Wise, we've got the likely lads, you know. Uh, it wasn't quite like that. And we, we do that. So I wouldn't despair quite as much uh, about the so-called state we're in at the moment. But yes, I, I would do that, but I would have to do it like the radio. Just just do it. Uh, but I don't lust for it. You've got time for one last question, so please make it a good one. Anyone? Yes, when, when, when are you going to finish? Go on, uh, <laughs> After this. <laughs> There's that. Hopefully not too fitting, but um, if Spike Milligan had on his gravestone, I told you I was ill, what would you have on his? Uh, uh, I, 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 basically, it would be something fantastic. It would be something. I, I genuinely think you get these if you take away the years of being a mewling, puking infant, and uh, and years of being infirm. You basically get seventy summers to rattle around this old amusement park, and I, so I think it'd be something like, well, that was brilliant. Oh. It would literally because it, it, it really has been. That was fantastic. Over to you. That's basically it. Uh, uh, but but because it's not a philosophy, but it's just genuine. If you read the book, knows that's pretty much what it is. It's not to say you're some kind of, you know, imbecile seeing everything like hello birds, hello flowers. But yes, it would be something like uh, ab that was absolutely fantastic, worth every penny. Evening Standard. <laughs> uh, it, <laughs> this one will run and run, life. Uh, uh, but so it, it really would be something as ab uh, hopefully it'll come and buy and say, oh yeah, yeah uh, like Spinal Tap. Have a good time all the time. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, please thank Mr. Danny Baker. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded live in front of an audience at the Museum of Comedy, Bloomsbury, London. Museumofcomedy.com. I've realised because you know it's like you walk out. I think that's what I should have said. Actually, given the, the garrulousness, I, I think probably on the tombstone we say, "Oh, actually, one other thing." <laughs> <laughs>